couple of things that I uh, came to mind as I was sitting there. First of all, you may have noticed that our intrepid uh, flautist, Christy, is not up there right now. She had foot surgery on Thursday and is laid up, going to be laid up now for a few weeks. So if you would, please pray for her. Just pray for a speed recovery. It all went well. Um, everything's going great. Clyde is also not here. He's home taking care of her right now. So um, anyway, just kind of keep her in your prayers. I, it sometimes, you know, you send out these prayer requests from someone who has a heart attack or, you know, is having some kind of really serious surgery. And when someone has foot surgery, which doesn't seem as serious, you don't necessarily think, well, I should send out a prayer request for that. Well, that's, that's on me. I should have let everybody know that that was going on. But So please keep her in your prayers. Um, oh, the other thing is that this past week in our life group, the idea was uh, uh, brought forth that it would be great if we as a church could do something uh, in regards to all the victims of these storms that are uh, that have been either displaced from homes or um, you know just affected in some way. And so uh, what was decided was that we would make as a group as a church group, a contribution to Samaritan's Purse, which is the uh, organization that Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, heads up. And so if you would like to be a part of that, uh, what I would ask you to do is make your check out to Harmony Vineyard Church and then um, just put Hurricane in the memo line and we'll know what that's for. And, uh, and so we'll collect those and then send a check. We'll, we'll take two weeks, this week and then next week. So I'll get something out in the, um, the message this week as well to let people know that, that weren't here. But if you would like to participate in some way, like I said, check to Harmony Vineyard, memo line, hurricane. We will get all those funds together and then send a check to uh, Samaritan's Purse for them to uh, use however they see fit in the relief efforts that they're a part of. So that's that. And the other thing is I've got the strongest sense that God's up to something today. I have no clue what it is, which is just like God to not tell me. So we'll see what happens. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for whatever it is that you're doing. Whoever um, that you're involved with right now that may be sitting right here among us. So I just pray um, a blessing on that. Just bless whatever it is you're doing right now. We just ask you for more. Lord, I pray as well that you would touch minds and hearts through the words of this message. Especially those that need to hear it the most. Let's give you thanks and praise, Father, for uh, for this church, for our opportunity to gather together as a church, and for a body that puts an emphasis on worshiping you. So I lift all these things up now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been, last four Sundays, been talking about this thing called the road to recovery. And... Um, bears the question, well, why is recovery important? Well, I've said this a bunch, and I'm going to keep saying it until I think everyone actually has heard it. And I don't just mean heard it, I meant heard it. 
it's because we all have uh, hurts that are difficult to forget. It's because we all have habits that are currently messing up our lives. And it's because we all have hang-ups that are really difficult to get rid of sometimes. And so up to this point, we've looked at the first four steps of the eight steps uh, to recovery. And, you know, we keep all these sermons out on the website. So if you missed the first ones and you want to go back and listen to them, they're all out there. But the first, uh, the first four of these um, were summarized in these four words. So number one was to realize. Realize I'm not God. Admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. Step one. Step two, earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. Okay? Step three, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. So in other words, we admit we're not God, well then we sort of admit that he is. <laughs> and we say, okay, I've not done a terrific job of managing things. I will going to let you do that now. Step four, openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. And that's what Mark talked about last week. And so today we're going to look at step five, which uh, is really called the transformation step. And it's the V in the road, uh, or in this word recovery that we're looking at. And the V stands for voluntarily. And the full text of it is to voluntarily submit to any and all changes God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Okay? And that's sort of based on uh, a verse that I find get, I seem to run into a lot. I think it gets quoted a lot. Uh, most people know it in one form or another, but it's Romans 12, one, verses 1 and 2. Um, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Oh, and this thought also occurred to me. By the way, I wanted to thank Mary. It's so wonderful to have a prophet or someone giving a word of prophecy come up, but then also teach on prophecy at the same time and tell you, you know, you need to test these things. That's so, so thank you so much. That was just terrific. Um, so this morning I want to really do three things, okay? I want to talk about where your character defects come from, I want to talk about why it is so darn hard to get rid of them. And then I want to talk about, well, how do I, how do we cooperate with the change process that God wants to put in place and see how that God, and let God change hurts, habits, and hang-ups that have been messing things up for you, okay? So let's start with, where do my character defects come from? Well, some, some of these you know, but you inherited some of them. Okay, this is the part where you get to blame your parents. <laughs> you know. Now, now are there any science teachers in here? Oh, no. Okay. 
Um, do we have 23,000 chromosomes or 23,000 pairs? Does anyone remember? 23 pairs, okay. But more than, well anyway. Let's just suffice it to say that your parents contributed to those pairs of chromosomes. Um, and so in, because of that, you inherited some of their weaknesses, okay? You inherited perhaps some physical um, traits, positive or negative, um, but you also inherited some emotional things from your parents, both positive and negative. And so that might explain your predisposition to a particular problem. But it doesn't excuse any sin that might be associated with that. So for instance, um, because of my parents, maybe I have a tendency to have a really hot temper. But that doesn't mean it's okay for me to go out and murder somebody. Maybe I have a tendency to be lazy. But that really doesn't offer any excuse for not doing anything with my life and to just be a bum. Maybe I have a tendency genetically to a given set of addictions. But that doesn't excuse me to go out and to make the choice to become addicted. All right? So... Your nature, genes, genetics, whatever you want to call it, that's one possible source of where a character defect could come from. Some of them may just come from the way that you were raised. You know, we're all raised a certain way, and we learn an awful lot of ways of relating to things. We learn patterns of living. We learn habits, how to deal with things. And you not only learn from your parents, but you learn from a lot of other people too. Teachers, coaches, anybody that had any influence on your life. Bosses, friends, coworkers. So you learned to respond to your own needs in certain ways. And how to cover for yourselves. How to handle hurt. How to handle rejection. See, a lot of our defects are simply self-defeating attempts to meet unmet needs that we have. Let's just say, we all have a legitimate need for respect. But if you, <clears throat> if you didn't get respect early in your life, then maybe you settle for attention and you figured out a way to get attention in many, you know, many situations and in many ways. You may, you have a legitimate need for love. But if you didn't get love, then maybe you just settled for cheap sex just to get some emotional closeness with another person. We all have a legitimate need for security. But if you didn't get it, then maybe you tried to cover yourself with materialism and with possessions just to show, okay, I'm secure. I feel secure now. I have all this stuff. So some of them were the way you were raised. And some of them you chose. <laughs> if you choose to do something and you do it long enough, it becomes a habit. And once it becomes a habit, you're stuck with it. Things maybe that you never intended to develop in your life develop because you chose to do a certain thing long enough that it became a habit. Okay, so that's where 
these things uh, come from. So the next question that I raise is, well, why is it so hard to change these things? You know, we want to, but yet somehow we don't seem to be able to. And, and so why is this so hard? Well, I think first and foremost is it's because you've had them a long time. What we tend to forget is we didn't get to be a certain way overnight. And so, conversely, you're not going to change and get to be a different way overnight either. You see, we've developed some of these ha habits or patterns. We've developed them in childhood. And they may not be comfortable to us. They may even be self-defeating. But you know what? They're familiar. We're comfortable with them. It's kind of like an old pair of shoes. You know, they may not be the best for running, but they're comfortable. And so for a lot of the defects that we have, we just kind of say, well, that's just the way I am. And because we've had them for so long, it's really difficult to let go. Another problem is identity. See, oftentimes I think we confuse our identity with our defects. Right now, in your own mind, I want you to complete this sentence. It's just like me to be. So what did you come up with? A workaholic? Overweight? Anxious? Passive? Fearful? See, when you say things like that, you're setting yourself up. And you're identifying yourself with your defect, and, you, and it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Someone maybe, you know, maybe they say, yeah, I'm always nervous when I get on an airplane. Well, what's going to happen the next time you get on an airplane? You're going to get nervous. I mean, you've basically prophesied over yourself that that's going to happen. You're saying, that's who I am. I get nervous on airplanes. And <clears throat> what happens to a lot of people, and this is just one of those mysteries that I, I understand, but I never will really be able to totally figure out. One of the reasons that people can't change is because they're afraid to. Why are they afraid? Well, here's why. They're afraid that if they let go of this defect, this thing that's this caused this huge problem in their life, if they let go of it, the question in their mind is, will I still be me? This has been a part of me for a long time. If I let go of it, am I still going to be the person I think I am? And so even though there's massive negative effects from this, people are hesitant to let go of it for that reason because they're afraid of what, what's on the other side. Another reason is payoff. <clears throat> Every defect has a payoff. It, maybe it causes pain. Maybe it masks your pain. Maybe it gives you an excuse to fail. Maybe it allows you to compensate for guilt in your life. Maybe it gets you attention. 
Maybe it allows you to control other people. But any time a negative behavior is repeated in you, yourself, your kids, anybody, even though it's self-destructive, there's always a payoff. We don't do things that we don't get rewarded for. Now, you maybe never thought of it that way, but there's a payoff involved in acting a certain way. Like I said, maybe this defect allows you to get attention. Maybe it allows you to control somebody. So there's this payoff, and you do not unconsciously want to let go of that. And so you have to be aware that that reason here is in the mix as well. And then finally, Satan discourages me. We know he's constantly suggesting negative thoughts. He's the accuser. That's what scripture calls him. He says, that's never going to work. You can't do that. You can't make that change in your life. Who do you think you are? And so there may have been some of you who have been listening to these recovery messages in this series, and, and, and your first thought is, you know, this is good. I, there really are some habits or hurts or hang-ups that I would really like to get rid of. You know, I've been hating so-and-so um, for, for years because of what happened when I was in grade school and they bullied me. I would love to change that. That that's why you're sitting in here. So then you go out in the parking lot to get in your car, and immediately Satan starts in. Well, who do you think you are? You're not going to change that. You might as well forget it. Other people can, but not you. You're just stuck. It's hopeless. Don't even think about changing. Anybody else? hear those voices from time to time? Well, the Bible says Satan is a liar. He is a liar. The Bible says the truth is what sets us free. So how about we choose to believe a God who is incapable of lying instead of believing an enemy who is by nature a liar? I think that would be a good idea. Okay. So now, we know we maybe have a little bit of insight into how some of these things occurred. So how do I go about cooperating with what God wants to do in my life? Right? We know God does not want to leave us where we are. He wants us to change. He wants us to be the perfect creatures that he intended for us to be originally. So what I'm going to give you are, are seven ways that you can sort of refocus things so that you can maybe change some of those hurts, habits, and hang-ups that you really never thought it was possible to change. Okay? So here's number one. Focus on changing one defect at a time. Proverbs 17.24 says, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. And what I think that is saying is, focus on one thing. 
right? The eyes of the fool are all over the place. The discerning is looking at wisdom. And wisdom says, focus on one thing at a time. You know, you may hear about Celebrate Recovery. You think, gosh, that's great. I've got 30 things that I know I need to fix about me. Okay, stop. (laughs) Don't do that, please. You're going to get overwhelmed and you're going to get discouraged. And you probably won't change anything because you're not being specific. What I would suggest that you do is this. Go to God and say, Lord, tell me exactly what specific defect you would like me to work on. Which one should I put first? Not what I think it is, but what you think it is. Now, I know Mark probably talked about making a moral inventory in step four, as part of step four. Well, this is a great opportunity. You've got the list. If you did it, go down your list and say, all right, Lord, which one of these things that I've put on here is damaging my life the most? And then let him start working on that. One at a time. Focus on anything greater than that. It's not going to work. All right? Number two, focus on victory one day at a time. In Matthew 6.11, Jesus, in in, uh, his prayer that he gave us, he says, give us this month our daily bread. Well, no, I don't, it doesn't really say that. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Why? I think simply enough, God wants to give you just enough strength to change for one day. Not for a week, not for a month, not for the rest of your life, not for eternity. One day. And so what we so often try to do is we take a lifetime problem that may have happened when you were a child that you obviously didn't get it overnight and you've got to then break it down into bite-sized pieces that you work on one day at a time and you get God's strength one day at a time. And you pray when you get up every morning, Lord, just for this one day, let me be patient. Just for today, let me think pure thoughts and not lustful ones. Just for today, please let me not lose my temper. Just for today, I want to be positive instead of being negative. Just for today. One day at a time, bite-sized pieces. Focus on God's power, not your own power. Whether you've actually thought about it or not, you already know willpower is not enough. If willpower worked, you would already have been changed. But you haven't. So you can't. And you won't, because you alone and by yourself don't have the power to do it. So willpower does not work. 
In fact, in, in fact, depending on your own strength, very oftentimes blocks recovery in your own life. We say things like, I can work it out. I can handle it. I can do it all by myself. Really, I'm fine. It's not a problem. What does that sound like? It sounds like those self-fulfilling prophecies all over again. Now we're trying to convince ourselves we can do this. But what God says is, just forget it. <laughs> You're never going to change if all you focus on is your own willpower. But the good news is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Gonna, uh, we've been showing a testimony every week, and so today um, is the testimony that I think really em sort of emphasizes what we're talking about. My name is Bob, and I am a believer in recovery for drug and alcohol addiction. Thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and I'd like to share with you how God has guided my life and led me in ways that I never dreamed. I grew up right here in Orange County. I came from a loving home. Growing up, my dad and I didn't share a lot of emotion, but my mom and I had kind of a kindred spirit. I did all the normal things that kids did growing up. I was an A, B student and very involved in sports. I played soccer for almost 12 years. During this time, everything seemed fine until I got into junior high school, where it was then that I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. I really liked the effect that it had on me, and at the time, I thought it was cool. Well, wasn't it? All my friends were doing it. I liked the effect so much that I began using on a regular basis. From the first time I tried drugs and alcohol, something in me clicked and I felt right at home. What started as a way to fit in soon became an addiction I could not get out of. This lifestyle ultimately led to harder drugs and heavier drinking. I kept trying to control my using to find contentment, but the truth was my addiction was controlling me. The true struggle that I did not see, the true struggle was that I did not see myself as a person created in God's image with value and purpose. As my addiction progressed, I plunged down a long road of destruction. I lived in a constant state of confusion because of my chemical abuse. My grades dropped throughout high school, and I was nearly expelled twice. When my parents found out I was using, they had no idea how bad it really was. I ended up in an outpatient program for almost six months, where I did and said all the right things to get my parents off my back. In spite of numerous treatments and many rehab programs, which I agreed to in order to satisfy my family, I continued to live in the denial of my addiction. During a period where I was being drug tested, I even discovered what drugs would not show up on a drug test. By this time, I convinced myself that I would not let anything stand in the way of my using. The director of the last treatment center told my mom that if I wasn't willing, she shouldn't waste the time or the money on getting me sober. And she looked at me straight in the eye and said, are you willing? And I looked at her back and said, no, I wasn't. 
but what I was really saying was that drugs and alcohol were more important than her or my family. I was like a tornado through their lives and everyone around me. I barely graduated high school by a half a percent, and I think my mom was more proud of it than I was. She was the main reason that I made it through high school. Had it not been for her, I wouldn't have graduated at all. And then shortly after high school, I moved out on my own so I could use more freely and hide it from my family, or so I thought. This served, um, during these next three years, I started selling drugs, and this served two purposes. First, to pay for my addiction, but secondly, to give me a sense of self-worth. Although it was a false sense of self-worth, I began to get many friends as a result. My addiction had gotten so bad that I lost my place to live and had to move back home. This was on condition that I would admit my addiction and get sober. So this time I thought I would try it on my own. And needless to say, I failed miserably and my life never changed. By this time, I had started using speed, also known as crystal meth, for almost three years. By the time I got into the program, I weighed about 125 pounds, my chinks were all sunken in, and I wore baggy clothes to cover up how bad I had gotten. I thought I was fooling everybody, but the only one I was fooling was myself. Because I was living at home, my parents could now see that I was a threat to, the, to their safety and those I worked with in our family business. And my family finally put their foot down by doing an intervention in my life. They wrote a letter that said how much they loved me and cared about me, but could no longer watch me destroy my life. They said that if I didn't get help, I would have to leave their house and our family business. My whole world started caving in on me, and the fear of being left with nothing finally gave me the willingness to get help. So I decided to go to an AA meeting for the first time. After attending a few meetings, I began to understand how utterly powerless I was over my addiction. And admitting powerlessness, I realized was only the first part of step one. I also had to admit that my life had become unmanageable. This meant that my way didn't work anymore, and I came to realize that it never really had. In the meetings that I attended, I met a Christian man who brought me to celebrate recovery seven and a half years ago. From my first meeting, I knew I was right at home. Celebrate Recovery helped me to realize that meetings were not enough and that my recovery depended on a relationship with the only true higher power, Jesus Christ. And it was then that I asked him to be my Lord and Savior and director of my life. And I fully came to believe that although I was powerless, Christ's power was more than I would ever need to recover. These were the beginning steps on my road to recovery, but there was much work to be done. Though God had lifted my denial, he required me to take action and mend the destruction of my past. God helped me to do this by working through the remainder of the steps. My first fearless and moral inventory, which I did shortly after I got sober, turned out to be anything but fearless and thorough. <laughs> so when Pastor John began doing the steps on a Friday night in 1995, I decided to get the CR workbooks and the Life Recovery Bible and walk through the steps again, including a brand new fourth step. Step four states that we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I really didn't want to repeat this particular step. However, I knew I had to in order to progress in my recovery. Besides getting a sponsor, I also connected with an accountability partner. And we set a date to start this rigorous house cleaning. Because without accountability, I knew I would take every opportunity to avoid starting this step. But this time, I asked God to search my heart Give me the strength to be fearless and rigorously honest. 
At the heart of my moral inventory, I had to deal with the destructive habits, the pain and hurt I had caused family members and others, and the defects in my character that led me to make such bad choices in my life. I had to pray often because it was very painful at times. For the first time, I was facing all the harm and all the hurt that I had caused my family, and I saw my selfishness and self-centeredness and how dishonest and inconsiderate I was. After finishing my fourth step, I no longer felt the need to run from the wreckage of my past, and with God's strength, I can face life on life's terms today. As new issues come forward, I can process them daily through the tenth step. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And as I continued through the steps, God called me to face my family and seek their forgiveness for the harm that I had caused. I could no longer just say I was sorry. Trust had been completely broken, and my amends had to be backed with action. I had said sorry a million times, and it wasn't effective anymore. And after a year in recovery, I went to them and apologized for the person that I was, and I hoped that they could see that my life had truly changed and asked them to forgive me. And it was on that day that trust began to be restored. And as God has led me down the road to recovery, he has given me a sincere desire to serve him, helping others who suffer with addictions. God began leading me to see how I could make a real difference with my life through becoming a sponsor, accountability partner, and a group leader. He has also given me the great joy and privilege of teaching here at Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights. But one of the greatest joys that I have today is having a front row seat in watching God change the lives of the people around me. And not only has he been faithful in guiding me in my recovery, he has also blessed me with the wonderful relationships he's brought into my life. My beautiful wife, Carrie Wood, who has brought more joy to my life than anybody ever. We've been married for five years as of this last April, and I can truly say that I love her and cherish her more than the day I met her. He's also surrounded me with many Christian men, far more than I can list in this testimony, but they're ones that encourage me and strengthen me and build me up and hold me close. As for my family, God has also brought healing to those relationships. Most of all, he's seen fit to use me to bring other members of my family to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My sister, who saw what happened in my life, began coming to Saddleback Church and celebrate recovery and gave her life to Christ. My mom, who never gave up on me and faithfully prayed for me for 10 years, went to be with Jesus two and a half years ago after battling cancer for nine years. My mom was always there for me every step of the way in my sobriety, and God gave me the opportunity to be there for her in her final days, all the way until I saw her take her last breath here on earth and head home to be with Jesus. Had I not been sober, I would have never been there for my mom or my family. If this wasn't enough, a year later, God gave me the courage to talk to my dad about Jesus. And I had the privilege to lead my dad in a prayer to ask Jesus Christ into his life on November of last year. And on April 27th of this year, he went home to be with my mom and the Lord after his own battle with leukemia for eight years. This transition has been extremely difficult for me, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, because I worked alongside my dad for 15 years in our family business, and now he's no longer here. We talked over business, personal struggles, and praise reports. And sometimes he had to wonder if I ever kept a thought to myself. 
So here I am, almost being fired from our family business, now standing up here as a store owner, and all the responsibility is now on my shoulders. But one thing is for sure, although I don't have my dad any longer to pass things by, I have my Heavenly Father who will continue to lead me in every step that I take. Praise God, all things do work together for good. My life has been completely transformed in ways that I never dreamed. God has given my life my life and purpose. He has taken the most meaningless parts of my life and used them to give my life the most meaning. He has taken, uh, God has not only restored my heart, soul, body, but he's also restored my mind. He brought me from being a near high school dropout to completing my first semester at California Baptist University on the dean's list, where I'm preparing to serve as a pastor. As for low self-esteem, it completely disappeared when I was brought into the loving service of Jesus Christ, who will never leave me nor forsake me. God has done immeasurably more than I can ever ask or imagine. He has given me something that I never thought I would have, the gift of sobriety. And five days before my dad passed away, I celebrated my seventh year of continuous sobriety. Praise God. And in those seven years, I have been through many things. I've seen life when my niece was born. I've seen death the night my mom went to be home with the Lord and watching my dad slip away into the arms of God. I faced the pain of my past. I have hope for the future. I have walked through the fear of living life sober. I have had successes and I've had many failures. And I've learned to forgive and I know what it's like to be forgiven. But most of all, I've learned to love and to be loved. And I'm convinced, just as the Apostle Paul was, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Death can't, life can't, angels can't, and demons can't. Our fears of today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers, powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is this love that has proven to me that I can face anything life gives me sober. And I'd like to close with a few words from my favorite song by Crystal Lewis, Beauty for Ashes. It comes from the verse in Isaiah 61, verse 3. It says, I was once lost, but God has found me. Though I was bound, I've been set free. I've been made righteous in his sight, a display of splendor all can see. He gives me beauty for ashes, strength for fears, gladness for mourning, and peace for despair. And I stand up here today as a trophy of God's grace. And there's thousands of other people out there just like me that need to step up and be a trophy of God's grace. So I encourage you to take this program back to your churches and give somebody like me an opportunity to experience the love of God. Thank you. All the willpower in the world cannot make that kind of change in a man. All the therapy, all the fads, seminars, podcasts, and self-help books cannot make that kind of change in a man. Only Jesus can. Focus on God's power.
God, not on your own. Number four, focus on what I want, not on what I don't want. Philippians 4.8 says, fix your thoughts on what is true and good and right. Think about things that are pure. If you focus on the bad, it's going to keep on dominating your life. If you focus on what you've been, it will keep dominating your life. Instead of resisting, the Bible teaches refocusing. There are I think there are roughly 7,000 promises in Scripture. So probably the most helpful thing that you could do is to memorize Scripture. Just pick one verse and memorize one verse a week. In a year, that'll be 52 verses. Those things are, will then be in your mind so that you can use them to counteract all the negative thoughts that come in. You just fill your mind up with God's word. Every time you think a positive thought, every time you think a scriptural truth, every time you think any thought at all, it creates an electrical impulse in your brain. And then every time you think that same thought, it just gets deeper and deep, more deeply embedded, and it reinforces that pattern. Some of you have got some deep negative ruts in your mind because you've thought of them over and over and over again. And the only way to get rid of them is to think of God's word over and over and over again. Focus on doing good, not feeling good. See, if you wait until you feel like changing, you're never going to change. The accuser is going to make sure that you never feel like changing. It's always a lot easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. If you don't feel loving towards your spouse, well, start acting loving and the feelings will follow. I think it's Alcoholics Anonymous that uses the phrase, fake it until you make it. <laughs> Do the right thing even though you don't feel like doing the right thing. Because you know it's the right thing to do. And you just do it anyway. And then eventually those feelings catch up to it. Focus on people who help me, not hinder me. It's pretty much common sense to say that the right kind of people will help you and the wrong kind are going to hinder or even prevent your recovery. Scripture says bad company corrupts good character. In other words, if you don't want to get stung, you stay away from bees. You see, if you're struggling with alcoholism, you say, you know, <clears throat> I really would like some peanuts. I think I'll go down to the bar and have some peanuts. <laughs> if you struggle with pornography, don't go into adult bookstores. 
get some sort of accountability <clears throat> on your electronic devices. You just don't get around the things that you know are going to mess you up. The Bible says two are better than one and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Get help from another person so that if you fall, you have somebody there who can pick you up or better yet, to keep you from falling in the first place. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And then finally, Focus on progress and not perfection. We've talked about this <clears throat> culture we live in and the immediacy of it. The fact that everything has to be right now. You know, immediate responses to our texts and, you know, immediate, we, get, we have a question, we can immediately get an answer to it. All those sorts of things. And so we're sort of conditioned to see and expect that something's going to happen immediately. Well, this isn't one of those things. This is truly a process. You make the decision, and then the process follows. Okay? And so don't worry if you don't start seeing change happen right away. You've got to give it time to work. God says, the scripture says that he, God, who starts a work in you will bring it to completion. That might be a good scripture to start with if you're having trouble with this. And there are some that think, well, <clears throat> if I could only get to a certain stage, then God is going to love me. Because He's not going to love me until I get maybe at least semi-perfect. At any rate, I need to get better than where I am. Because he's never going to love me where I am. Eh. Wrong. Wrong answer. God loves you at each and every stage that you're in from as imperfect as you are right now to the perfect being that he sees you with above-the-line eyes. If you recall the sermon series we talked about, that above and below the line and how God sees you. God is never going to love you any more than he already does now. might be the hardest truth that, it, that we have as human beings to try and accept. Because we're told in so many different ways and by so many different people that we are unlovable, that we are imperfect, and that God will never really love us. And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, as a father, I would look at my kids as they were growing up. And I never expected my seven-year-old son or daughter to, to act like they were 17, right? They weren't capable of that. 
you know, they still spilled things. They, you know, did stuff. It's because of their age. There was, there's no blame there. But I loved them when they were seven with all my heart. today. God is so pleased with your growth. As long as the direction of your heart is saying, God, I want to voluntarily submit to the changes that you want to make in my life. I humbly ask you to please remove these character defects. Now God's not going to start changing you until you're entirely ready. And so that means that what you need to do is to voluntarily submit and to humbly ask. And when you are entirely ready, then he'll start working on you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right. Can we get the lights, please? Like I said earlier, I don't know what the Lord's up to today. I just know he's up to something. Of course, that's not exactly going out on a limb because he's always up to something. But I just get the sense that he's up to something specific here. And I, you know, if anybody has gotten any insight into that, I, I welcome your, your insight because I don't have any. But that's all right. I think God does a lot of things that he doesn't tell me about. So if I could have some folks up here who have been released to pray. And I will say this, if, if God is doing something on you or to you or with you, you know it right now. There's no doubt in your mind. And if that's happening, then please don't let this moment pass you by. That's a signal as big as life that God wants to do something, wants to complete whatever it is he's doing. And all you've got to do is go see one of these folks and just say, this is what I think God is doing, and they will join with you in praying for whatever it is that you sense God's doing in you right now. There's power there where two or more are gathered is what scripture tells us. It's all it takes. So I'm going to just pray a little blessing here. And after that, 
You all are um, free to do whatever, free to stay, uh, free to go, free to get prayer, free to stay and just kind of bask in, uh, in God's presence. So, Father, I just give you thanks. Father, for whatever it is that you are doing, and in whomever uh, you are doing it in or to, we just want to bless it and ask for more. Just continue to touch, Father God. Just continue to touch. Father, bless all these, your people, uh, who have gathered here today. Just touch them all in a mighty way. Bless each one in a way that is unique to them. And then show them how to take that blessing and turn it around and use it to bless others. Give you thanks and praise, Lord God, for who you are and for your endless, boundless love. Keep us all safe until we have the chance to gather together again. Show us how to be your hands and feet in a world that desperately needs more of more. And in doing so, we'll give you all the praise and praise and honor and glory. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.